Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read and this very special edition of the Times Opinion podcast to mark the end of the referendum saga, which has resulted in the endorsement of the union we are staying together and to discuss all of the implications of this momentous period in british electoral uh, history i'm joined today by phil collins the chief leader writer of the times richard fletcher our business editor and from west sterlingshire in scotland by melanie reed welcome melanie Hello. It's good to have you. And um, we've obviously got this result now. I know it's the result that you wanted. It's a result that 55.3% of Scots wanted. But how divided do you think your country is now? It seems that passions have been running incredibly high. How, how easily is Scotland going to be healed after this debate? Well, it's going to take a little bit of time. I think whatever side you're on, we're all physically and emotionally drained. Uh, I personally feel like a wrung out dishcloth this morning. <laughs> and I suspect there are millions of other Scots like me. I'm relieved it's decisive, but I am desperately sad at the divisions it has encouraged and accentuated and caused, I think. Alistair Darling said earlier, rather glibly, I thought everyone in Scotland wins today, but there are 1.6 million people who will need convincing that they won. And the poignancy, the tragic thing about it is that those were people who were disengaged with politics. Yeah. And um, they have turned out in large numbers. And they are now going to be terribly bitter and disillusioned. And those are the people that will have to be sought out now uh, to try and, and to be encouraged to re-engage with politics, but hopefully in a way that won't lead to more cynicism. In Scotland, we've always been great ones for sort of saying, you know, I write promises, promises, and be very full of black humor and disillusionment. It would be great if some of those people could be kept enthralled the evidence from the opinion poll seemed to suggest that the large and large, particularly large section of the yes vote were victims, if you like, casualties of globalisation, poorer Scots who haven't done so well in recent years. And I suppose if you're talking about disillusionment, those are the people that are going to be 
most disillusioned um, by this result because what they hope for isn't going to happen. What I would say is that Alex Salmon's brilliance in this campaign was to offer these people a blank sheet upon which they could project their yep. dreams. People who had nothing to lose could project their dreams. It's a superb bit of psychology. And the tragic thing is that those dreams... Uh, will not be fulfilled. And the vote is split by wealth. I mean, this was again an early trend last night and it became increasingly clear that the prosperous parts of Scotland uh, voted very much in favour of no. How soon do you think the SNP will be back with another claim to have another vote on this? Because Well, it's that question, isn't it? Are they dead for a generation? Mm. Uh, What's your I, view? I rather think that the amount of time, effort, energy, money that's been spent on this campaign will exhaust people. And as I say, the Scots have a natural tendency to cynicism and disillusionment. And I rather think it will certainly be put on the back burner now for a little while. Okay, Um, Phil Phil Collins, do you agree with that? Do you think this is... I think the Prime Minister, um, when he was speaking in Downing Street this morning, we're recording this podcast on Friday, said that it was over for a generation. And then he quoted Alex Salmond and said over for a lifetime. Is it really over for 20, 25, 30 years? It may not be over for that long, but I think it's over for a a reasonable period. I, I think the no campaign are now moving quite quickly to try and define their victory as having been decisive. If the victory had fallen the other way by a single vote, it would have been decisive and emphatic and probably permanent. And the no campaign have to try and do the same, which is more difficult, but that's what they'll do. I think the nationalist side will realise you can't come back that quickly when you've had a defeat. I also think the margin of defeat makes a difference. To have a 10.6 percentage points gap is quite a large margin, in fact. If it had been closer, then the demands for a a quicker one... Phil, can I just press you on? Is it really that decisive? Because quite recently we were looking at opinion polls where actually the no vote was set for a 20% win. You've still got 45% of the Scottish people, you know, there's a, and it almost is 45% of the Scottish people, the turnout was incredibly high, who do not want to be part of the United Kingdom. That seems to me to be actually quite a large number of people rejecting being part of this country. It is a, it is a problem. I don't think it's a permanent solution. I just don't think it, that the question of independence is going to recur very quickly because what we're going to go to now is a more maximal form of devolution. We're going to get into a long argument about how we organise ourselves as essentially a federation. So you're going to get more power back to Scotland. I agree with Melanie that there's a lot of people particularly those voting for the first time, for whom it wasn't particularly about that. I think there's a sense of of immediate empowerment which brought them out. And very often when people come out to vote, they don't want anything in particular other than a a sense that they want to wield power. And there may well be lots of people who feel disillusioned about that. I wouldn't anticipate that many of those will, will come out and vote in a general election, though there will be spillover political consequences for a general election. But I think the direct question of whether we have another referendum on independence is probably gone for 10 years now. Richard, uh, just on that. Richard so, Fletcher, yeah. Uh, yeah. Sorry. It's really important that that is the case because otherwise if we have this this spectre of a never-endum, that's really damaging for the Scottish economy because we've seen over the last year in terms of investment, the Scottish economy has underperformed the rest of the UK. People have put off investing. And as we saw in Quebec, if there is this belief there's going to be another referendum, that will damage investment in the Scottish economy. And that's the last thing we need. In terms of how the debate was run, Richard, I think there's been lots of criticism of the No campaign for running a campaign that the SNP described as Project Fear. But nonetheless, 
the economic arguments were probably pretty compelling for a lot of the no voters. An opinion poll published today by Lord Ashcroft suggests that it was. And I just wonder actually whether this was Scotland's best ever chance for the foreseeable future to actually want to vote for independence. Because if you look at the possible decline of North Sea oil revenues in the years ahead, you look at the demographics of Scotland. It's a country that's ageing much faster than the rest of the UK and therefore potentially has greater public spending challenges. The economic case for staying part of the union is going to get better and better in the years ahead. Without a doubt. But it's interesting that you say you feel it was the economic fear. Ed Conway, who writes, who's the Sky's economics editor, but also writes a fantastic column for us, he argues, and he he argued this week, that actually there hasn't been enough conversation about the economics. And actually that was his worry, was that people hadn't really appreciated how bad it would be for Scotland in terms of the the economic performance if the the vote had gone the other way. Melanie? Uh, The other reason I don't think it'll come back very quickly in the sense of the world changing, we we cannot know what will the world will be like in 20 years' time. And I think it will have become an even smaller and even more threatening place in many ways. And uh, I think that will impact on on future voters. And will make them more likely to want to be part of a bigger country or make... Oh, no, I think the opposite. I think it will make... I think, I think... Without doubt, Scotland will become more globalised. That is a trend which which will happen. Okay. And before we move on to the implications for England, um, Melanie, where do you think Alex Salmond and the SNP go next? They've fallen in this great task that they they set themselves, but they must be stronger as a political force in Scotland. They probably exceeded their expectations, getting 45%. I think they were. I mean, back in early 2014, privately, SM people were saying, what we need is 40%. If we get 40%, we've got credibility. They've got way more than that. They've got credibility. But I have one sort of caveat, and that's that I think this campaign has been so horrid that from the point of view of people who, who, who want a United Kingdom, that I think a lot of people who voted for the SNP as good managers because they, they didn't see a, a ready alternative, I think a lot of people who, who sort of centre-right people have had their fingers burnt. And I wonder whether that will affect the SNP's vote in, in more sort of domestic elections uh, to come. Okay. Well, I want to move on to the second theme in this um, podcast. And if I could come to you, Richard Fletcher, on this. John Redwood, during this campaign, the uh, English Tory MP, has been speaking, I think, for lots of Conservative MPs and saying, what about England? And um, he's written a blog today saying that we have a devolution settlement at the moment where Scotland has a first class parliament, Wales and Northern Ireland have second class parliaments, and England has nothing at all. And the Prime Minister, David Cameron, has said that he's going to address this, that he's going to introduce some sort of system where Scottish MPs in Westminster can't vote on legislation that only affects England or Wales, for example. And the opinion polls suggest this is very popular by two to one uh, the British people support it. I don't know what the English people in particular think. I suspect they'll be more in favour of it. This is the next chapter of this, well, this saga. Absolutely, and we obviously saw Nigel Farage post his letters to the Scottish MPs this morning. <laughs> I'm not sure that was the best. Bit, uh, gi- bit gimmicky, I thought. It, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, the system obviously is unfair, and the changes we'll see in the coming weeks will only undoubtedly make it more unjust. But it's easy to conclude that the system is unfair, but it's a lot harder to work out how to make it fairer. And obviously, 
if we are still a union or a federation, as Phil suggests, but if we're still a union, we have to have some say in each other's affairs. And it's to me, the problem is about how we work that out, how you do that. But as well as English devolution, I do think the one thing we are going to see over the coming weeks is regional devolution. And given the, the effect that London has on our economy and the fact that we are, as, as a country, we really have only one major capital, mm. I do think people are going to use this as an opportunity to argue that we need more regional devolution as well. Labour, of course, tried this in the past when Tony Blair was Prime Minister. Absolutely. And Lord John Hesseltine tried it recently as well. In but terms there's of a the difference, though, isn't there, between regional devolution and devolution to cities. There's potentially more purchase for devolution to cities and city regions because people identify with Greater Manchester perhaps in a way that they don't identify with the North West or they identified with Tyneside, Teesside in a way they don't identify with the North East. Phil, you want to come in yeah, on Yeah, it rather cuts across your earlier point that people are very interested in this. I think people are fundamentally not very interested in this and uh, I would number myself as one of them. Um, <laughs> as you put in be- the red box. Just message. because there's an anomaly in our constitutional arrangements, it doesn't necessarily mean we have to fix it. That's a, a very good conservative wise principle. Uh, we could say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Just ignore it. Um, as propounded by that very conservative Prime Minister, Tony Blair. That, that's right, absolutely. <laughs> the best answer to the West Lothian question is never no, to I ask. I, I do think, though, that that has become an untenable position now, that um, just through sheer force of politics, there's ha- going to have to be an answer to it. I would go for a fairly minimal answer. I wouldn't go for a big parliament or any kind of new layer of government. I think we've probably got enough although I've always been in favour of more power being spread, so I'm, I've no problem with that. But trying to get regional assemblies, as Labour did, and, and was encountered this absolute wall of total indifference from the people in, in the regions where it was attempted, uh, I don't see that that's changed at all. And I don't think the Scottish argument has altered the... What's your... Min- you, say, you, you say you would support a minimal remedy for this constitutional imbalance. What, what would that look like if... You were a dictator of the UK. Well, uh, which is a very fine idea in its, <laughs> its own right, Tim. Um, 
Matthew, I, I dare migrate. Um, well, even more so. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners are signing up as we <laughs> as we speak. Um, Malcolm Rifkind has put uh, a very ingenious, what he calls the East Lothian answer to the West Lothian question, which is just to exclude Scottish members of Parliament from English matters and have a, a meetings of the House on, on English matters. And that strikes me as a straightforward, relatively easy way of solving a problem without creating a whole set of other ones. Uh, Melanie Reid, how, how nervous do you think the Scottish people are about someone that I think spoke yesterday about awakening English nationalism? Is there is there a fear in Scotland about this, or is Scotland so preoccupied with its own debate Scot- at the moment? Scotland is, is so totally obsessed with navel-gazing at the moment, I don't think they're sparing very much thought for that at all. Yeah. I okay. think it's, uh, I think... Uh, <laughs> One of the unfortunate consequences of this is that we need, we need to lift our eyes and start looking at bigger horizons again. But in the short term, I think the constitutional change issue for England and Wales will not engage the ordinary You're, you're going to have plenty of navel-gazing, to use your expression, in the months ahead as the whole Devo-Max settlement yeah. is debated. <laughs> yes, out. So it's, it's not over yet, I can warn you. But uh, Phil, just to back to you, just to finish on this sort of English question, which can segue us into the final theme, which I want to, which is the politics of all this the party politics of all this Tories whatever your sort of indifference to this English question the Tories think they're on to a winner here either way they think they either get some kind of English votes for English laws which means that Scottish Labour MPs can't vote on the English National Health Service for example in English schools which means that it's very hard for Labour to form a practical majority after the next election or Labour resist the introduction of this uh, constitutional innovation and Conservatives can then for play the English card at the general election and say Ed Miliband is just speaking for Scotland and Wales and he doesn't care about England. I think you're right to say they think that and I think they're right to think it. I think they are onto a winner. Uh, they are particularly onto a winner if they get some kind of English settlement because it's quite a rare event that Labour can win without Scottish members of Parliament. Tony Blair managed it but no other uh, Labour leader. Wilson managed it once but it's, it's mm. a rare thing. Uh, Labour needs Scotland really to form an overall majority. I think Ed Miliband can't possibly win an overall majority if he doesn't have Scotland and so therefore he'd face the prospect of going into the 2015 general election campaigning very hard on the National Health Service and then not having a majority on the English Nas- National Health Service in Parliament so mm. not being able to get his legislation through. So it's more than anomalous. The government at that point sort of breaks down or it becomes American. You have to barter an agreement in Parliament on legislation uh, line by line. So it's very important. I do think the politics of this move towards the Conservative Party without question. I think the if we're looking for raw political losers from this process, I think Labour Party is, is the main one, not just for that reason, but also because this has been a campaign about economic risk and not jumping over a cliff has proved to be the decisive argument. That argument will be the emphatic argument at the 2015 the election too. At the general election, and yeah. it's not gone well. And Ed Miliband's presence in Scotland, a Labour heartland, it was always said he could cement support, did not go well either. He had to be bailed out by Gordon Brown and Jim Murphy. So there's not a great Jim, deal Jim, Jim Murphy's had a very good campaign. Superb. I mean, it really we've, all, we've all focused on Gordon Brown and fair dues. He's, he's played his hand well, but... Jim Murphy looked to me like a possible Labour leader in the future. Jim Murphy's a very talented politician who can communicate. He's a normal person who's got real passion and he's had a fantastic yeah, Jim, walk. Jim Murphy did, did, uh, did perform well. Yep. Thank you, Matt. Um, just, just on that, I mean, it's not just Ed Miliband who's got a loan. It's a big business who will campaign for us to stay in Europe if there is a referendum on Europe have also got to learn some lessons because for business, although 
that they came in late. They've been accused of fear and the CBI and, and others have looked all at sea. And so for big business, if they are going to campaign on Europe, which I believe they will, they have some really huge lessons to learn from this as well. Do you think there'll be, there was obviously threats by Jim Sillers, the big nationalist campaigner, uh, Richard, to those businesses if there was independence. Well, individual- do, do you think there could be still be recriminations anyway that certain Scots, very passionate about independence, might find ways of punishing some of the companies that did speak out? Absolutely, and there were lots of individual threats. I saw one of the chief executives on, on Wednesday night who had spoken out, and he had had individual threats, uh, hate mail, and I think you know some of the more sort of public-facing companies, some of the retailers have spoken out who are obviously they don't want to see boycotts and, mm. and so absolutely but is, is there any talk of boycotts at the moment there, there isn't but we'll be looking at you know it'll be interesting to see john lewis's figures for the next few weeks they release figures by store so we'll be able to see if they have seen a fall in glasgow in, in particular which absolutely. did vote for independence absolutely have they seen a, have they seen a fall in sales so it is interesting but business has a it feels even more strongly about your big business feels even more strongly about the European referendum and therefore they, they really have going to have to think about how they interact in terms of if we do get a European referendum. And do you agree with the basic point that Phil was making that Ed Miliband is probably the big political loser from this? Scotland is supposedly a Labour heartland, he didn't seem to have any purchase there, Absolutely. he had to have Gordon Brown and other people rescue him. He seemed to just be a peripheral figure throughout the campaign and you just wonder, contrasting today, and I'm biased as a Conservative but often critical of David Cameron, you know, the, the contrast between David Cameron and Ed Miliband's performances, one looked like a prime minister and one really doesn't. Peripheral is exactly the right word, and he just l- looks, you know, looks terrible. If, you, if, Melanie, has Ed Miliband featured really prominently in the Scottish coverage, or has it all been the big beasts of Scottish politics? I think he's appeared a little bit. I mean, there was one day he was at the centre of a very unruly near-bun fight in a, a, a shopping mall in Edinburgh. Yes, we all um, saw that. His mind has had to sort of whisk him away because he was in danger of being uh, drowned. But to be absolutely fair, he doesn't make the right impact in Scotland. He doesn't have that toughness and sort of machismo as a politician that the Scots like. So the way that the Gordon I think, Brown I think has, the, I think the English has. quite like that toughness as well. I think, Tim, what uh, Ed Miliband has done is achieved a, a really significant negative political achievement, which is to get you to be nice about David Cameron. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things that will happen after this, I think, is that the Conservative family might bind together a little bit more. It's been mm. very fractious recently, and I, I'd be provisional about that, but if that happens for the next eight months, and Cameron moved very quickly to try and appease his own people today, very effectively, I thought. That is a very important political fact. And the opposite of that is that Labour becomes fractious. We're on the eve of the Labour Party conference in Manchester. We're both going to be there. Labour always strikes me as much more loyal than the Tories. It's said that loyalty is the Tory secret weapon. We keep it very secret indeed at times. But how much do you think there might be noises off about Ed Miliband's leadership? Or is the party discipline going to be maintained? I think the discipline will essentially be maintained. I think you're right, the Labour Party has become a very loyal party and there's been a lot less infighting since um, 2010 than you might have anticipated. 
there's going to be anxiety rather than fighting, I think. They are worried about Scotland, for example. They're worried that their message didn't carry even in Scotland and that the SNP might be a threat to them at a general election. They're worried, of course, that that will carry over into other areas too. So I think there'll be a lot of anxiety and trepidation at the Labour conference, not too many noises off in the sense of wanting to do anything about it, which I think is, is inconceivable. Can I, if, Richard, if, if, if Tim's going to be nice to come and maybe I'll take up the beat, but he has come out of it very well, but that has felt a little bit like that's more luck than yes, good judgment. Yes. And, yep. you know, the normal the, service resumed. <laughs> <laughs> but the, you know, the wording of the question, there are. I, I, he wouldn't have been forgiven if the referendum had gone the other way. Or no, because there have been not. some, there, there were some errors. But as you say, he has come out of it looking absolutely fantastic. But I do think some of that has been luck. And I think he'll still have troubles with his backbenchers over the Barnet formula, absolutely. for example. I think lots of Tory MPs think that was an unnecessary commitment to maintain that extra public spending that Scotland has. Final question for you, Melanie Reid, uh, please. One of the things that the SNP constantly promised the Scottish people was that if they voted for independence they would end Tory rule forever. I'm not sure how potent that was on the um, on the doorstep but is there any way back for the Tories in Scotland? Uh, <laughs> I again it, it would take a generation I think and it'll take another generation to remove the toxicity of, uh, of poor old Mrs. Thatcher's name but I've long thought that they needed a name change north of the border uh, that there's a need. Any, to any ideas, Melanie? What no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm afraid not. But the the, the centre right, as I say, the centre right earlier on I mentioned, they really have nowhere to go at the moment. Well, I, I wonder if you do get proper devolution when the uh, Holyrood isn't just responsible for spending money, but responsible for raising taxes as well. That might be an opportunity for a centre-right party to emerge because if, there's, if the choice at Scottish elections isn't just who will spend money but actually who might cut taxes and keep costs under control, that seems to be the best route back for the Scottish Conservatives. I, I think there will have to be a change of name though because there is no venom like the venom that the working-class Scot can put into the word Tory. Tory, yeah. You, um, I'm sure you can say it better than I but can. But it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a challenge for them, yes. Yeah. Melanie Reid, great that you've been able to join us. Thank you very much, um, Richard Fletcher and Phil Collins. Thank you as well. And also we've had a guest producer today, Phil Brown. Thank him and to all of you, of course, for listening. If you are a Times subscriber, if you go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, not only can you subscribe to this uh, podcast via iTunes so that you never miss an edition, but there'll also be some links to some background articles that you can receive as a Times subscriber. We'll have some special podcasts over the next few weeks because we'll be coming from Manchester, Birmingham and Glasgow from the party conferences. I hope you'll tune in. Until then, goodbye. <laughs>